Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, a show brought to you by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit organization that, through leadership development, communication, action, and exploration, is growing a community of like minded stewards of the ocean. I'm John Sherburn, I'm the show's producer. Our president and host is Richard Hyman, and today's episode features Richie Kohler. Richie is a true explorer. As a boy, he read whatever he could get his hands on about war histories and outer space. He grew up fast, and at age 15, life's journey opened up inner space, the undersea world. He's since become a very accomplished technical shipwreck diver and also a filmmaker, author, television host, and a feature in a thrilling book called Shadow Divers, which is about the quest to identify an unknown World War II German U-boat in deep water off the coast of New Jersey. Just so you know, you don't have to be a diver to enjoy this episode. Richie shares fantastic accounts of his dives on deep wrecks, including the Andrea Doria and the Titanic sister ship, the Britannic. Oh, also the Titanic itself in a submersible. You can listen to the Blue Earth Podcast anywhere you can find podcasts. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, you can go to Future Frogmen on any platform and get more content just like this. So go on our website at futurefrogmen.org. We have animations, we have other conversations, video series, and a bunch more content. So fasten your dive belt and let's get into it. Richie, thank you for joining us on the Blue Earth Podcast. It's so incredible to meet you and an honor. Really, really, I'm glad to be here. I'm, I'm happy to share my story and in some way maybe influence the next generation of underwater explorers. Yeah, that's one thing that jumped out at me reading uh, Shadow Divers. The word explorer, explorers, uh, exploring just came up so uh, frequently. It was really, really very cool. It reminded me of uh, my old friend Jacques Cousteau, and uh, something that we uh, we're proponents of at Future Frogmen, uh, exploration. Uh, it's a great way to learn, get out of the laboratory and into the field and, and see what's really happening out there. So, Richie, um, can you take us back to the beginning when you were, when you were a kid? <laughs> you know, uh, when, when I was young, Richard, um, a couple of major events occurred that that really changed, I think, the perspective of not only adults, but more importantly, a whole generation of young people across the world, boys and girls. And that was the Apollo space program. I mean, it literally unfolded on, I wouldn't say daily, but you know, every week there was something. I mean, I, I lived through the Gemini uh, launches and then of course the first Apollo and then subsequently the landing on the moon. So I think like many other young people around the globe, you want to become an astronaut. You know, I, I got to the point where um, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, my father had a boat and uh, he owned a class company and, and on the weekends we would go out on the boat. And, you know, that was pretty adventurous for a kid from Brooklyn. You know, I don't want to say the mean streets, but it was certainly New York City. So it showed me that there was a world outside the city streets. And at the same time, you know, when you're eight years old, everything's possible. And at the same time that, you know, Neil Armstrong, that year, the same year that Neil Armstrong took those steps on the moon, my dad did something that was also incredibly important in, in where my young mind would go. And that was taking scuba diving lessons. And my dad is the kind, and he still is the kind of man that um, encourages his children and grandchildren to try to touch. To, you know, he's not one of those that wouldn't allow you to do things. I mean, when I was eight years old, I was learning how to use a skill saw. 
I was on the boat learning how to not only tie the lines or run the boat, but to, to set the hook on the fish. So he always encouraged us. So when he took these scuba diving lessons, I was fascinated when he took that double hose regulator, pulled it over his head and disappeared below the surface of the pool. I was leaning forward like, is he gonna drown? You know, and, and, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I had seen scuba divers on television, but that was my dad. He was doing this. And if he could do it, I could do it. And so once he became certified in our family pool and then later behind our family boat, my father would put those tanks on my back. And so from the time I was eight years old, I had already known how to disassemble and assemble a scuba tank and regulator, put the backpack on, adjust it for my little frame. Um, always at that point, uh, Richard, there, there were no BCs, there were no uh, uh, submersible pressure gauges, you know, you, you had a K valve and, you know, it's, it's, it's really the, 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 the rudimentary beginnings of scuba diving. But what it did was it lit my imagination. And when I was 15 years old, and the reason that magic number was that was the youngest back then you could become certified was 15 years old. So literally I turned 15 in March, which was my birthday. And I believe in April I was enrolled in what was then a junior scuba diving course. I, I graduated that and I have a certification card that said I was only allowed to dive to 80 feet of seawater and only in the, in the accompaniment of an adult. And of course, the next year when I was 16, I got my basic cert certification, a basic scuba diver, which now allowed me to go anywhere a scuba diver could go. And, and I took that wholeheartedly. Um, honestly, Richard, I've been scuba diving um, with the exception of two years where um, I had some marital problems and, and, and some other issues. Um, I've been diving every year since I've been 15 years old. Yeah, it's interesting talking about uh, your fascination with uh, the space program and outer space and uh, what I believe uh, Captain Cousteau would call inner space. And uh, you didn't get to outer space, at least not yet, but you've spent a lot of time in inner space uh, under the surface of the ocean. And uh, that was coupled with, uh, I believe when you were a boy, you read voraciously, you read a lot about... Uh, uh, wars and uh, it's interesting how all that reading you know it, it it tied into really the rest of your life looking at these shipwrecks uh, whether they be military or not uh, it, it's uh, ironic uh, and, and really no accident you know there's a funny connection that just dawned on me as you mentioned this is that um, number one, um, all of my grandparents or grandfathers, both of my grandfathers and um, many of my uncles, great uncles, all served in World War II. And in both of my grandparents' house on their uh, dresser in their bedroom was a picture of, of each of my respective grandfathers, of course, in military uniform. Uh, and so I would always ask them. I knew that they had served. And of course, there were television programs that uh, were serials like uh, combat that I would watch. And it's amazing to note that um, they never wanted to talk about it. They never wanted to talk about the war. They never wanted to talk about what they did in the war. Uh, they never glorified war. They, uh, as a matter of fact, my grandfather would come in and see me watching combat and would turn it off and say, turn that crap off and get outside and go play. Um, so if I wanted to know about 
my grandfathers and what they had done, my uncles, I wasn't going to get it from them. Um, even my father uh, and other uncles couldn't answer the question as to what the grandpa do in the war. So that created this desire in me to learn more about World War II. And um, you mentioned reading. I, I, don't, I don't know how, I don't know why. I know that my mother read, my grandparents read, they read to me. Uh, and uh, quite often, you know, you would go to their home and they had stacks of Reader's Digest and I would just love these short stories that would take you literally around the world and diverse uh, subjects and just fascinated me. But of course, as you mentioned, one of the things that I was drawn to was tales of bravery. Um, as a young man, I think it's kind of natural to, to, to lean toward that and of uh, sacrifice, the, the concept of sacrifice. I mean, it, it's just so, it's so hard for you to wrap your, your mind around the concept that uh, one person would be willing and could make such a difference to save the lives of many. You know, and it's one thing that we see quite often in fiction, you know, when you watch Star Trek or Star Wars, you know, and somebody always, uh, you know, taking, taking one to save the team, but it's, it's different when it's real, hmm. when this is not fiction, when you know that that person had to make that conscious decision of what to do and sometimes in a split second. And, and I've wrestled with that. You know, you, you wrestle with these emotions. I mean, one of the most basic instincts is self-preservation. And so when you can push that aside um, for either the love or, or a sense of uh, commitment to others, it just fascinated me as a young man um, to the point where I, you know, I was, as you're probably aware, I, I wanted to join the military. But we'll go into that in a little bit later. So re reading always uh, opened up my world, opened up my mind to uh, a lot of different potential uh, things that I could do or explore. And obviously, once I started scuba diving, and then I discovered shipwrecks, well, it, I mean, it, it is the perfect melding of science and history for me. Because every shipwreck has a pathos. Every shipwreck has a story, a human story attached to it. Whether that is an act of war, whether it is an accident, or a tempest or storm, any one of those events uh, that occur, there's a human element behind it. And you find almost everything in human nature comes across in these stories, whether it's bravery or cowardice, uh, villainy, and courage. All of these stories are right there if you want to look, if, if, if you might, pardon the pun, if you'll go below the surface, you can find these stories. So shipwreck diving combines a sense of adventure that, that little boy who wants to be an astronaut. And then if you would also the amateur historian that really loved to get behind the story and understand why people did what they did or how they reacted. And, and again, at first blush, history um, was to me at that time as a young boy, perfect. Just as the ink was indelible on the page, so was history. And so later on, when I started to research shipwrecks and I realized that like human beings, written history is fallible. Written history is also uh, subject to your perspective. So this was an amazing thing that I, I found out as a young man, that, that not everything that we read in the history books is always correct. Yeah, it's interesting when you're talking about the, uh, some of the human interaction there, the bravery, 
And uh, it, it reminds me also kind of as a, a parallel to what happens during the dives, particularly the te- deep dives, where uh, I didn't realize this because I'm not a technical diver. I'm, I'm an accomplished diver, but, uh, and I I've, I've, have done deep dives, but uh, not, not in the way you have done them, certainly. And uh, I did not realize that oftentimes technical divers dive alone without a buddy. Uh, some of the some of the stories have two guys that want to pair up, but oftentimes uh, individuals. And uh, some of the dives that I read about of your dives, uh, uh, you're individually diving for, for some good reasons. So maybe you let's use that as a segue. If you could uh, tell us what is technical diving and how is it different from what people typically think, you know, the recreational diver. Well, let's start with uh, just like every other scuba diver, I was a basic scuba diver. What that means is I was diving with a single aluminum tank and I would dive to a maximum depth of let's say 100 feet, 30 meters. And I would just stay down there for a maximum of 10 to 15 minutes because we would never want to get into what's called decompression. So staying away from decompression, not diving too deep, and just diving with what we now know to be just simple, basic open water scuba equipment is the, I don't want to say the entry level, but it's what 99% of scuba divers do. And and so this 1% of scuba divers are people who now go a little bit further. And what I mean by that is instead of using a single tank, they may use double tanks. And they do this so that they can go deeper and also stay longer. Well, once you do that, you're going to have a ceiling over your head, an invisible ceiling called decompression. So I'm going to give you three definitions of what technical diving is to me. And it varies from person to person. But technical diving simply means that you are now diving with something that is either either not air. You're no longer breathing air. You might be breathing something called nitrox or trimix or heliox. So you're no longer just breathing normal air. That's one level of technical diving. The second level of technical diving is having a ceiling over your head, meaning going into a cave, going into a shipwreck, or having an imaginary ceiling of what we call decompression. If you go deep and you stay long, you will have to, it's mandated that you have to get uh, the nitrogen you've absorbed out of your blood, so you have to come up slowly. This process is called decompression. If you don't do this, you can become injured or even paralyzed or die. So it's, it's an imaginary ceiling, but no uh, uh, less real than a cave or a shipwreck. So that, that's the second one. And then the third one is when we start using equipment other than scuba equipment, like a rebreather. Now, a rebreather is a technical piece of equipment, and you don't have to go very deep with it, and you don't have to stay long. You can use it the same way as scuba equipment. The benefit of a rebreather is that it gives you much more time, and it also gives you the, the optimum type of breathing gas, no matter where you are in the water column, whether you're 30 feet or 300 feet deep. A rebreather automatically will give you the optimum breathing mixture. So the use of a rebreather or technical equipment like a rebreather would now also constitute. So it's either what you're breathing in a scuba tank, the type of equipment that you're using, 
or the fact that there's a ceiling over your head constitutes technical diving. And so the most simplest term is if you can go diving and without any problem come straight to the surface, well, then you're usually just a regular scuba diver. So obviously, as, as you're aware, and, and I think as many of our listeners are going to become aware, I started out as a basic scuba diver and I did not have any desire. As a matter of fact, when I started out, and I'm sure when you started out, there was no term technical diving. People just went diving. Even Jacques Cousteau, when he dove Britannic, to him, that was just scuba diving. But we now know it and we define it as technical diving because of all of the different equipment and gases he was breathing. So my journey into what we call technical diving was because of shipwrecks. I lived in uh, the New York, New Jersey area, and there were many, many shipwrecks. And the ones that were close to shore and shallow had been explored by many divers before me. And so if I wanted to truly be an explorer and find virgin or new shipwrecks, we had to go further offshore, and that meant deeper. And so I found that I hit a wall at about 200 feet. Beyond 220 feet, breathing air becomes toxic to us. And although some, I'm going to use the word daredevils, can get away with it, it's, it's like driving on ice. It, it, if you're not careful, it will get away from you and you can die. And, and so breathing air below 220 feet is not good. So when the opportunity for the diving community to adapt technical military and commercial equipment and gases so that we could go further, this opened up my world. In, in other words, now 220 feet was no longer the limit with the use of these gases and larger scuba tanks, I could go further, deeper, and stay longer, safer. So our, our opportunity to explore other shipwrecks in the area just blossomed. And it, you know, some people call it, uh, I think even uh, Robert Person in the book Shadow Divers referred to it as the golden age of shipwreck exploration off of New York and New Jersey, because Prior to that, people had hit this imaginary 220-foot wall, but now we could go deep. Um, other equipment that has allowed me to go even further now is the closed-circuit rebreather, which, again, is military and commercial technology that we, the sport divers, have adopted and used. But, you know, with any of this technology, um, I hate to, to quote Spider-Man, comes great responsibility um, as a diver. Um, it does give you a lot of safety and it gives you a lot of ability, but that comes at a cost of you being trained, experienced, cognizant. And um, one of the things that you mentioned earlier is about technical diving, uh, divers being separated. Well, now the further we go, we actually dive more as a team. So when we're diving deeper and deeper and deeper, we're no longer the lone wolf. Now we're actually diving as a team for safety so that if there was a problem, we have three people with sets of equipment that can help uh, remedy a, a malfunction or, or alleviate the, the, the problem by using their bailout options. So we've come kind of full circle in, in the lone wolf approach. And um, when we talk a little bit about the Andrew Doria, I'll explain why people were diving alone. Yeah, that makes sense that it's come full circle. And some of that's uh, probably been made possible due to the enhanced technology 
some some of those dangers of uh, with a buddy may have been eliminated. Well, you, as you mentioned, we'll talk about that on, on Andrea Doria. I have to tell you, uh, I was also fascinated by. Uh, uh, it sounded like uh, you dive with as much as 175 pounds on your on your back on your body of, <laughs> of equipment. And uh, I got to tell you, with, with Cousteau, it, you know, he was chairman of the board of U.S. Divers, and uh, we did not have a BC on the ship. You said you you guys <laughs> typically, uh, I don't believe, were using BCs, but uh, uh, they told me leave your BC at home. We don't use those, and. Uh, we did uh, uh, my final expedition. We were diving on wrecks. Uh, we, we dove on the USS Monitor off of North Carolina, deep dive, on air, and uh, and then we went down to Martinique and dove on some fairly deep shipwrecks down there. Um, it, uh, but you know, we could have had the best equipment that was available at that point in time, but it was typically bare bones, uh, two tanks, and a knife knife on your calf and. Uh, Maybe a wetsuit, maybe not down in the Caribbean, but uh, the guys on camera would have wetsuits on for, for the camera. Anyway, uh, you were talking about the value of uh, and the requirement to decompress, and uh, the implication is the associated decompression sickness if you don't uh, take the steps to get that nitrogen out of your blood. Uh, can you also comment? There's another associated danger with those deep dives, the nitrogen narcosis. Can you tell folks about that? Well, you know, for, for the uh, uninitiated, there's, uh, and I believe that Cousteau himself came up with the term rapture of the depths. And then I don't believe he was credited with what was called Martini's Law. I don't think they teach that anymore. Hmm. But there was a, a, a parallel between the deeper that you go, the more inebriated or the more narcotic nitrogen becomes to the diver. And one of the things that I've observed personally, and I think other people have as well, is depending on your mindset and the diving conditions, you could either become euphoric and just, you know, I think it was, again, Cousteau said you'd become so drunk you'd pass your regulator to a, a fish. Um, and conversely, if you were diving in dark, dirty water with limited visibility um, inside, let's say, a shipwreck where it's frightening, and then you still you stir up the silt, now that same narcosis can um, snowball into blind panic where you're thrashing about and you've just lost all control. Um, the same way that a horse would run back into a burning barn, a diver would become so incapacitated he could not make the most basic self-rescue decision and wind up hurting himself. So narcosis, uh, which again is, is a problem when we breathe just normal air and dive deep, um, can be mitigated by the use of these mixed gases I had mentioned earlier, um, trimix being one or heliox being another. And again, this is way outside the realm of what we call sport diving. Your, your average sport diver who visits the shipwreck, whether it's the Rhone or any of the wrecks in, in the Virgin Islands or the Bahamas, you know, you're not going to need to use trimix. But if you do venture below 100 or 120 feet, narcosis starts becoming very real. Um, I can tell you that um, personal experience diving on uh, the Andrea Doria and other wrecks at 200 feet and beyond, I would do a task 
and then immediately not realize or forget that I had just done that task and redo it again. Case in point, I had tied uh, our rope from the boat into the shipwreck. I looked at it and then I untied it and tied it again as if maybe I didn't like the original knot. Well, uh, a buddy who was with me filmed me doing this and then later on questioned me as to why did you do that? And I said, I didn't do that. And he goes, oh yes, you did. And I go, no, I didn't. And then he showed me the video. And so that proves to me that you're not even aware at this point because of that level of, I don't want to use the word inebriation, but you are altered by the narcosis. And that's one of the best reasons, as well as the uh, problems of uh, oxygen toxicity, that we want to use these um, trimix and heliox as an alternate to breathing air. Now, you referred earlier to the Andrea Doria, and it sounded like you had a had a story about that. You just touched upon it there. Uh, can you uh, elaborate? Well, yes. Uh, you know, the, the Andrea Doria, um, for, again, for, for our listeners who may not be aware, was the pride of the post-war Italian fleet. Um, she was a passenger liner, and uh, she was one of two ships, uh, the Christopher Colombo, and the Andrea Doria. Well, we know who Christopher Columbus was, but Andrea Doria was a famed Italian uh, naval admiral. And, uh, and so he, he was honored uh, posthumously with the naming of this ship. And these two ships were outfitted to be floating art palaces of their time. Like many other passenger liners, they were in competition to try and get some of the high-end first-class customers. And the way that you would attract them is by building the most opulent, the most uh, um, artistic, and most advanced ships so that when people wanted to travel from Europe to America, they could do so in style. And the Andrea Doria was a lot of things, and style was at the top of it. It was fast, it was sleek, and it was beautiful. And in 1956, when making one of her voyages from Europe to America, she was only one day out of uh, arriving in New York when she was off Nantucket Shoals, uh, uh, Massachusetts, and there was a very thick fog. It was about 11 o'clock at night, and in the fog, although she had radar um, and saw another ship, both the, the Andrea Doria and the other ship, which was the Stockholm, misinterpreted their radar. And in what to this day still baffles the mind at how they did this, these two ships on a, on a flat ocean, just because they couldn't see each other in the fog, wound up colliding. And in doing so, 52 people on board the Andrea Doria ultimately lost their lives, most of them in the immediate collision because they were sleeping in their beds, waiting to get to New York the following morning, and the bow of the Stockholm cleaved right into the side of the ship, right into the starboard side. And about nine hours later, the Andrea Doria would sink beneath the waves. It is famous for many different reasons and probably the most famous, uh, excuse me, it's famous for many reasons and probably the, the most important one was it was actually filmed. Not the accident, but people the next day were able to go out there by helicopter, the newfangled helicopter in 1956 and small airplanes and fly around this sinking ship, 700 foot passenger liner. And we have not only photographs, but video of this iconic moment when the ship rolls over on its side, dips its bow below the surface, 
and then takes a dive to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. This was played on TV, on news. It was the first time ever in history that people could actually see a, a civilian accident where a passenger liner sank. I wouldn't say live, but my gosh, it was just about as live as you can get back in 1956. So this state, it stayed in the social conscience. And almost immediately, um, some brave daredevil divers uh, would go out and actually dive the wreck while it was still bubbling. Air was still coming out. And these pictures uh, graced then the, the cover of Life magazine, which was a, a really popular uh, publication back then. And so all around the world, especially in the United States where the accident occurred, the name Andrea Doria, much like Titanic, became synonymous with disaster. But more importantly, it never left the consciousness of the people here in the New York and New Jersey area. And when um, multiple salvage operations went out to try and not only at first think about salvaging the ship and meaning bringing the whole ship up, when they realized that wasn't feasible, then it was about finding uh, objects of value from inside. One of the things that they did recover almost within a few years of the sinking was the statue that was inside of the famous Admiral, Andrew Doria, uh, which now resides down in Florida, believe it or not, in a, in a restaurant. Um, <laughs> it was bought by a restaurateur who uh, put it in his restaurant. Um, and then, of course, there were safes on board, and, and there was rumors of, of course, untold riches, like every shipwreck always has these rumors of gold and bullion. Uh, and one of the people that had been part of the Andrea Doria story, story from the very beginning was a gentleman named Peter Gimble. Peter Gimble, there used to be a department store in the New York area called Gimble's, like Macy's or Sears. It was a very large department store chain, and it was his family's. He was the heir to the family fortune. And he was a bit of a, a playboy, if you will. And one of the things he loved to do was go diving and and. He was one of the very first, him and a gentleman named Fox, were the first divers to go down and see the Andrea Dory after it sank and take these photographs of this beautiful ship laying at the bottom of the Nantucket Shoals. Well, he was the one who came up with the idea of salvaging the ship's safe. Well, when he did that, I was just getting into wreck diving and it fascinated us and many of the Atlantic uh, coast divers that were diving shipwrecks because he had the salvage right. He went out there with a ship and they cut a hole in the side of the Andrea Doria and they salvaged one of the safes and it became, it was televised again and became very big news. And then after he salvaged the safe, the ship was abandoned. And all of a sudden in the early 80s, a bunch of divers got the idea of, hey, if they could do it, we could do it. And so my first trip to the Andrea Doria would be in 1985. And I can tell you that um, back then it was, and to some people, even to this day, it's considered the Mount Everest of shipwreck diving. And the reason for that is when most of our dives were occurring within 20 to 30 miles offshore, the Andrea Doria was nearly a hundred mile boat ride to get to it. Uh, when most of our shipwreck dives were 130 or 140 feet, this was 250 feet. Nobody was diving to 250 feet. On the occasion, we would dive maybe to 200 or 210 feet. But even then, we'd only spend 10 to 15 minutes. So my very first dive on the Andrea Doria 
I can tell you that I had trouble mustering up the spit to, to clear my mask because I was that nervous. Um, the trip before that I was on, a very experienced diver from Florida had lost his life inside the injury Doria by getting tangled up in cables. And they had to come back with bolt cutters to cut the cables to bring his body out. And this was fresh in everyone's mind the day that I was going to go diving. So I was aware of this. And, and you know, we would go down. I was 24 years old. I went down. I, my first dive, I just touched the, the, the side of the ship. And I had felt like, wow, I, I had really done something. On subsequent dives, I would venture inside and eventually pick up bits and pieces of crockery um, to bring home and, and, and add to my collection of things that I had picked up um, from the ocean floor from shipwrecks. And I became fascinated with the story of the Andrea Dory. And again, as I mentioned earlier, you know, knowing how people acted that way and, and how those actions not only affected the outcome of the story with the ship sinking, but in some cases, um, the lives of others. And so it gets back to that, that, that interest and passion I had as a young boy about trying to understand how the action of one person can affect, in some cases, a sacrifice, and in another case, um, an act of cowardice that may, may doom other people. So the Andrea Doria has all, is rife with all of those type of uh, human elements that make for a fascinating story. Numerous books have been written for it. And for me, as a, a young man who, you know, dove shipwrecks or dived shipwrecks for a hobby on the weekend, Diving the Andrea Doria had proven that I had, at this point, come of age, if you will, in, in the small community, the 1%, of you will, of divers who like to dive very deep expressly for the purpose of shipwreck exploration. And those dives to 210 feet on air um, were somewhere I can remember how uh, exactly um, impaired I would be because of just simple motor skills and just simple. Uh, one of the stories I love to tell people about a dive on the Andrea Doria was, I, were, I refer to it, I've written about it, the Greenhorn. I was the Greenhorn. I was the youngest member of the group. Um, and therefore they took me under their wing and they, was, they were teaching me things that you could not learn anywhere else. There was no wreck diving classes. There were no technical diving or deep diving classes. As a matter of fact, Almost every one of the dive shops and many of the dive boats that catered to just sport divers frowned on us and our behavior. They thought that we were reckless. They thought that we were um, a liability. Many of them didn't want us to come on their boat. There was some dive boats that would not allow divers with double tanks. If you had double tanks, you couldn't dive on their boat because they felt that if you had double tanks, you could get in trouble. You know, you're going to stay too long or you're going to go too deep. So they limited... Uh, their clientele to people with only single tanks. So we uh, became known and we kind of embraced the, the moniker or nickname, the crazies or the thugs. But this group would later uh, get a much more respectable name um, and become a member of an affiliate of diving clubs throughout the New York and New Jersey area. And our name was the Atlantic Record. But I think there's still people who think of us as the crazies and the thugs. But again, 
uh, diving history, and as we look back, it's always put, there's always people who push the line, push the envelope, if you will, and then it becomes not necessarily the norm, but the line moves further. And what was once foolhardy and crazy now becomes a little more accepted. Um, case in point, when mixed gases, nitrox, first came out, there were many people would not allow you to dive it on their boat. There was some divers, dive shops, uh, they all looked against it. Many in the industry looked against it. They said that it's not for, for sport diving. And now look at it. I mean, you can't go to a diving location anywhere in the world and not be offered the opportunity to use nitrox. So I, I think it's, I'm not taking credit uh, or the Atlantic Rec divers uh, taking credit, but there's many people like us that push the envelope pushed hard on the walls, if you will, and eventually um, allowed for further growth in the diving community. Yeah, there's certainly good, some good stories about uh, Atlantic wreck divers in uh, shadow divers, very entertaining and uh, uh, historic, if you will. Um, and, and I did notice that even though that was 19 years ago or, or maybe a little bit further, uh, around that time, anyway, you, you guys were working as a team even back then. Uh, that's, that's correct. And, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this as a, a point to, to introduce a character who's going to figure not only um, really importantly in, um, in my life, but in the book Shadow Diamonds. Um, it was on the Andrea Doria that um, I would ultimately meet um, a gentleman named John Chatter. And, and John Chatterton um, was a diver from New Jersey. And at that time I was living in New York. And in some circles, that was enough not to like each other. You know, I, there was the New York community of divers and there was the New Jersey community of divers. And, you know, although uh, if you look at New York and New Jersey, it forms a V uh, into the Atlantic Ocean. So we shared the same water, we shared the same shipwreck. It's where did you both go back home? Um, so it's kind of ironic that, you know, we're, we're doing the same kind of diving and there was this, it's sometimes mildly competitive and then at other times it was, it was just over the top. Um, one of the, the stories that uh, has become lore now and is, I think is uh, well known because of the book Shadow Divers is when John Chatterton had discovered a new area to get a third class issues. He had to work very hard to do it. He was a commercial diver by trade. And so he brought his commercial diving skills to sport diving, to the Andrea Doria. He brought a torch down and he cut a hole in the side of the ship because he could see through a crack that there were all these dishes. But unfortunately the weather got bad and he had the, the, the boat that he was on, which was called the Seeker, had to pull the anchor and head back because the storm was coming. Well, that was the end of the dive season. And now they'd have to wait all winter for summer to come to go back. And we had found out, we meaning the New York dive gang had found out about this cache of dishes. And we were going to uh, get out there first and jump there clean. Well, then the New Jersey guys found out about our nefarious plan. And rather than just go out there, they came up with this plan to go out and put a gate over the hole that John Chatterton had cut and put a sign on it that had closed for inventory, crew and patrons of the Seekers. So when we went out there on our super secret mission to try and jump their claim, we had got one up by them. And 
you know, at the time I was, when I went underwater and I saw the gate and I, I started shaking the gate, I was angry. But by the time I got back up on the boat, I realized that we had been beaten at our own game and it was pretty hysterical. But because of that, John Chatterley did not like me, did not like any of the New York divers that I belonged, that I was diving with, um, because he thought that that was unsportsmanlike, that we were going to go out there and, and jump his claim. And he was right for that. So later on, uh, um, this would come back to actually create a dynamic uh, um, that has been captured in the book that whenever we want to start to go there, I'd, I'd be more than happy to continue on because at this point on the Andrea Doria, uh, um, John Chatterton and Richie Kohler did not like each other at all. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, I enjoyed reading how uh, there were a couple instances where, uh, uh, you guys were decompressing essentially together and, uh, uh, looked at each other and looked, John looked away and then he looked back and uh, I don't want to give anything away, but that w to me, that was the beginning of a bonding. And then, uh, I believe it was a separate dive, but not, um, too much after that, where you guys, uh, bonded on, on the, on the boat as well after some things happened. So why don't we go there though? Why don't we go to, uh, talking about that whole chapter of your life? Well, a couple of years after the infamous gate, uh, event. I had started, I had then moved to New Jersey. I did not, I know I had, I had worked in our family glass business in New York and um, ultimately we expanded and I opened up a new location in New Jersey. So I had then moved to New Jersey. So here I was now living, you know, and, and now diving with some of the boats that at one point were, you know, our, I don't want to use the word enemy, but our competition. So um, I was basically crossing lines, if you will, uh, and diving with, uh, with whoever I could go out with at whatever point I could. And so I would find myself often diving on the boat, the seeker, but I had never been diving on the boat, the seeker, the same time that John chattered. So our paths never really bumped into each other. But then in the uh, late fall of, of 1991, an event occurred um, that, you know, you, we often hear people say that this event, this thing changed my life. And, you know, I, I think we've become numb to that because, you, you know, you could listen to uh, advertisements for, for, for a product and this will change your life. So, so it takes away from the, 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 the real meaning of when someone says this was a life altering, a life changing event. And, and for me, that life-changing event occurred without me even being there, but it ultimately it would come home to roost. And so in 1991, the owner and captain of the dive boat Seeker advertised a trip to go offshore and look for new or virgin shipwrecks. And a virgin shipwreck is exactly what the name implies. It means that no one has ever been there. No one knows what it is in many cases. It's never been touched or seen since the day that it sank. And those type of shipwrecks are pretty much the holy grail for shipwreck divers because if you're a bona fide explorer, it's, it's cool to go underwater. It's very cool to go diving on a shipwreck. Take that and amp it up to know that you're the very first person to see that shipwrecks and know that you're the first person. That's an incredible feeling of discovery. 
And it's one of the things that, that, that drives not only me, but, but a lot of other underwater explorers like myself is to go further and, and to, to not only because they want to, to put a, you know, a, a sticker on their, their, their wall, so to speak, but they want to do it for the sake of understanding history, understanding what's out there and helping form a cognitive picture. Um, I would find out later that there's another meaning behind why it's important to find lost ships. And so in 1991, Bill tried to get a bunch of people, but what the problem was is that he had gone out a few times and they never found anything of note. They would go out there, they would find some rocks or they would find a barge, a garbage barge that had sunk while being towed, and literally a barge filled with garbage. Um, and you'd get some lobsters, but it wasn't very exciting. And because we would go, he was going so far offshore, it would be an expensive trip, around $150 per diver, which was a princely sum. It still is a princely sum, but it was a princely sum in 1991. And so he couldn't even get a full boat of people to go. And at the time, this new set of numbers or this mark that he had gotten from a fisherman um, was deeper than most people ever had been diving. Um, he was told originally it was about 180 to 200 feet, but when he got out there, he found out that it was actually 230 feet of water, which as we mentioned earlier, um, is, is incredibly dangerous diving on air. And that's the only thing that was available in 1991. So when they got out there, a couple of the divers went down and they were um, hammered, but with narcosis. They weren't sure of what they had seen um, nothing had really came up, but John Chatterton had believed that he had seen uh, an angled hatch and possibly a torpedo. But he didn't film anything, so there was no proof. You know, if you didn't film it, it wasn't real. And because of the narcosis, you're starting to question, what did I really see? So they swear themselves to secrecy after that first trip, and they tell everybody on the trip not to tell anyone. What, it, what they had found, even though they couldn't prove what they had found, they had no proof, but they wanted to come back with the tools, make more dives, and then prove they had found a submarine. Well, one of the members of that first trip was a very good friend of mine, um, originally from Brooklyn, like me, who lived in New Jersey. His name was Kevin Brennan. And uh, I don't think he had hit the dock in 15 minutes before. He calls me on the phone, and he's like, he and, and at least two other people on the boat for no other reason than what the shape of the submarine looked like to them, he thought it was a U-boat. But he didn't want to uh, break his promise to the rest of the guys about telling me what it was. So he, he calls me up at like 11 o'clock at night, wakes me up, and he's like, Richie, we found something really cool, but I can't tell you what it is. You're going to have to guess. And I'm like... What are, Kevin, what are you drinking, Kevin? What are you, what are you talking about? And this goes on for, for, for what seems like a long time where he's like, I, I can't tell you, you're going to have to guess. So I start going through all, like, all of the shipwrecks that are uh, lost off New Jersey that hadn't been found. I'm naming these shipwrecks. He's like, no, 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 no. And he realizes that I'm not going to get it because there is no submarine off New Jersey. At this point, no one had ever heard of a submarine off the coast of New Jersey. There was not one in, in the history books. 
And finally he starts going, well, I'll give you one clue. And he goes, it's not a my boat. In a very heavy Italian accent. It's not a my boat. I'm like, what? And, it, you know, he says this, oh, he says, that's all I'm going to give you. It's not. So I keep repeating it to myself. It's not a my boat. It's not a my boat. It's not a my boat. It's a you boat. And I swear it just, that's exactly how. And he goes, that's it, Richie. Yeah, we found a U boat. Oh, my God, you guessed it. You guessed it. Anyway, I'm like, oh, Kevin, you got to get me on this trip. You got to get me on. He's like, you can't, you can't, I can't, you can't tell anybody. So I had to keep my mouth shut, not tell anybody that I knew that I was in on the secret. And they went out the next weekend to go back out there. But um, while they were diving it, John Chatterton did take some footage and he was able to get some footage with a video camera of the torpedo. But tragically, on that dive, one of the divers succumbed to what's called deep water blackout. Again, because all of them were all breathing air and they were diving at a depth of about approximately 220 to 230 feet, um, deep water blackout could be attributed to either uh, oxygen toxicity, where because you're so deep, the oxygen can create a, 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 a seizure in the diver which the seizure itself is not anything that harms you. The problem is that while you're having the seizure, you drown because you can't hold the regulator in your mouth. So it mimics an epileptic seizure. At the conclusion of the seizure, again, there's no permanent damage if it occurred in an in a, in a, in a air-filled chamber, but underwater you drown. So it could have been that, or it could have been carbon dioxide um, from working hard and breathing too hard on, the re -bre on, a, on his regulator. We don't know. Um, many, many deep diving deaths have been attributed simply to the term deep water blackout. And that's what happens. Something is wrong physiologically. And this particular diver um, passed out underwater. His buddy tried to drag him to the surface, but the current was too strong. And unfortunately, he was unable to save him. Uh, they, uh, the body dropped to the seafloor. And the divers then had to come home. They'd had no more air to go and cover the body. They would have to go back out the next week to go back and try to recover the body. Um, obviously, because they had lost the person now, the captain, Bill Nagel, had to use the radio and alert the Coast Guard that there was a diver missing and that they had known that the diver had passed out so they didn't have to search the ocean for him. They knew what happened to him and where he was. And uh, so now the word was out that Bill Nagel and his team had discovered a what they believed to be a German submarine. Um, on that third trip to go out, Bill Nagel had, uh, Kevin Brennan had requested that they bring me. A couple of the people that were on that original trip realized that they were diving way beyond their ability. They did not want to go. They did not want to go back. Uh, and, and so Bill needed people that um, could dive deep, were uh, experienced at diving deep, and uh, as he would say, not go and do something foolish like getting themselves killed. And so I was invited to go out. And that night that I boarded the, the ship, the, the dive boat, to go out on the third mission out to the submarine, you know, John Chatterton wasn't given the notice that, you know, his nemesis from the New York dive gang was coming on board and he had a problem with it. He got kind of vocal about it. 
And I told him if he has a problem with it, he better talk to the captain because the captain asked me to go. And Bill Nagel said, no, but she's a good diver. He can go. And they told Chatterton if he didn't like it, he can get off the boat. And, and so Bill loved to throw gas on a fire. He just, he got off on watching us bang heads and, and, and he fueled it. And we continue to fuel it for quite some time. Um, so the next morning we arrived at the wreck site and we uh, go, into the, go into the water. I went down and I was convinced that this was an American submarine that had um, been being towed from Boston to Philadelphia for scrap. It was going to be scrapped and that was the spike fish. And in a storm, the spike fish broke its toe and was lost. That made sense to me versus some mystery U-boat that nobody could explain. That, that made sense because there was a, a fact of a historical American submarine somewhere between Boston and Philadelphia. And by the way, we're smack dab in the middle of that, right off Atlantic City, 60 miles off Atlantic City. So it kind of makes sense that that's where the spike fish would be. Coincidentally, the spike fish would be found a few years later, about 40 miles away. So it, 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 it was out there. Um, and so it was viable. And so I was convinced that all I had to do was find something with American writing, um, something that had USN on it, and then I would be the guy. Okay, I was the guy that identified it as a spike fish. But again, Kevin Brennan, my dive buddy, told me that when he kneeled down in front of the bow and looked at the front of the submarine, in his mind, he saw that, um, again, iconic imagery from the film Das Boot, where this submarine materializes out of the gloom and there's this haunting music, and he's telling me, you know, in his heavy Brooklyn accent, you had to see it, Richie, man. It's just like that. It's like just like in the movie. It's got to be a U-boat. And, um, you know, I'm, I know a little bit about submarine design, and there is a big difference between a German U-boat and an American uh, um, Vallejo-class submarine, but they both have a very pointy bow, and I'm pretty sure that I was telling him he was knocked out of his head. He just wanted it to be. Or maybe somebody else said it's a German submarine and it got in his head. So, you know, you go into the water with a plan. And I always dive with a plan. My plan was to go and find a fitting, any kind of fitting that would happen. I did. I found a, a, a plastic speaker tube, which I recovered. I found a, a container that had potash in it, um, which submarines, World War II, submarines would use to sprinkle on the deck plates to help absorb carbon dioxide if they were staying underwater a long time. Um, but none of these things helped me identify the submarine or its nationality. On the second dive of that day, the weather had picked up and only two guys would go in the water, John Chatterton and Richie Kohler. Um, everybody else was just like, it was too rough. They didn't want to make a second dive. They didn't want to push it. So John went down and he went into the forward section of the submarine. I went down and I went into the stern section of the submarine. Um, what I saw in the stern section was there was two torpedo tubes. And at the time I didn't re recognize what this truly meant. But John on the other hand went inside and he found a broken cabinet with a bunch of dishes in it. He put these dishes in his bag and he went up the anchor line before me. So as I was coming up the ankle line, I could look up above me and I see John doing his decompression stops and slowly our pace got to the point where I was right below him. And I could see the bag hanging below it and I could see the dishes inside it. 
And I knew that, you know, in that, in that bag was history. There was something, either I would be uh, vindicated and it would have U.S. Navy on it or it would be something else. So I went up, I put my hand over my head to look at the bag, turn it so I could read the back of the dishes and see what they were. And John pulls the bag away. Like, no, you can't look at it. And for a minute, it's just, again, it's just me and him on the anchor line. We're the only people in the water and our eyes lock each other. I mean, we're just looking at each other. You know, he's looking at me and he's got like this stern confidence. You know, he's like, not angry, but just like stern. And I just, I look at him and I, I think I shrug, you know, like I put my hands out, come on, what? And then he realizes that like, I'm not gonna cut his bag and take it or anything. And so he lets it come down and I look at it and through the mesh bag, I could see on the back of one of the bowls, the eagle and the swastika in the year 1942. And I was just totally electrified. I just held that and I looked at it. I looked at him, I looked at it again. And then I looked at the, another one like, are you kidding me? Because again, there was, as far as any history books, as far as anything that we knew about World War II off the coast of New Jersey, there was no sinking of a German submarine. So this submarine was outside the realm of our knowledge. It was outside the realm of anything that we had known. And I just realized this was something special right there. And I start punching John in the arm and congratulating and back slapping him on the head and hooting and hollering. And of course, by the time we got back on the boat then everybody else was doing that, you know, they were like, oh my God, look at this, we've got a German, it is definitely a World War II Nazi submarine. And the thing that I had uh, um, seen on the back uh, later would come to light and would help narrow down what type of submarine it was. But of course, it was more important that John had definitely uh, unequivocally confirmed that this was a World War II German U-boat. Um, in the days and weeks ahead, we would find that there was no expert, there was no historian, neither the official United States Naval Historical Center, nor the federal German government could answer the simple question, which U-boat this was and how it wound up 60 miles off Atlantic City. Subsequent dives would also realize that this was not one that had been captured at the end of the war and sunk as a target because um, inside the submarine, we started to notice the remains of its crew. Skeletal remains uh, throughout many of the compartments of uh, the 56 German sailors that had been lost when submarine sank. It would take us uh, nearly six years to ultimately define positively which submarine this was. And along that path of six years, the diving, which was again, extremely dangerous, would claim the lives of two more divers, tragically, a father and a son. Um, it is a, such a terrible story. I mean, even to this day, so many years later, it, it, it's just still rips me apart what had happened to the two of them and how they had died. Um, believe it or not, it, it even their accident um, spawned a, a book unto itself uh, just about their dive. It's called The Last Dive. It was written by a gentleman named Bernie Cowden about the father and son, both Chris and Chrissy Rouse, and their accident. And again, the, 
the accident occurred because they were diving air and um, made a lot of bad decisions. And um, although they made a bad decision and then somehow salvaged it, ultimately their final bad decision um, set into play uh, a series of events that neither one of them would ever be able to recover from. During the course of our work on what we now nicknamed the Yuhu, John and I became closer. Um, there became a small group of people, roughly about six or seven of us, that really worked hard. Um, John would ultimately first go to Germany and then Chicago. Um, we would ultimately go to Germany and Chicago together. We would um, go to the U.S. archives in College Park, Maryland, and pour through captured re German records, through U.S. naval attack records, trying to figure out the mystery. Along the way, we met many um, historians and archivists who were fascinated by these two blue-collar, regular Joes who were earning a PhD in, in, in the Battle of the Atlantic. Um, because again, we weren't satisfied with not knowing. You know, I found out, as I mentioned earlier, that you know, something happens, it changes your life. Although I had been diving many, many shipwrecks where there had been loss of life, this submarine was the first place where that loss of life was evident. I don't mean a pair of glasses or a shoe. I'm talking about skeletal remains of the crew, some cases still in their uniform. Um, and early on, John and I um, made, John and I were probably uh, one of the only two people in the early days of diving that would venture inside. Um, it takes an incredible skill set and um, a lot of nerve to be able to go inside this broken submarine where there's cables hanging. Um, as we found out later with the rouses, things could fall on you and pin you inside the submarine. Even the slightest movement disturbs the visibility and now you're literally in chocolate milk. You can't see anything. It's what we refer to as a braille dive. And, and so you have to be a, a type of diver who at 230 feet is comfortable, comfortable in that environment. And all the time realizing if you put your hand down, you may be touching somebody's remains and try to maintain your wits the whole time you're doing this. So it was a painfully slow progress of us going through the submarine trying to find evidence of its identity. And one of the things that John and I came up with was the fact that we would not do it in a less than perfect way. And what that meant was for me uh, uh, to not disturb the human remains because ultimately at some point I felt it to become my responsibility to be the person to tell someone, not that they knew that their loved one didn't come home at the end of the war. What we were going to be able to do is tell them they were no longer lost and that we were the people that found them and that when we found them, we treated them with respect. And, you know, when I tell this story to, to people and when some people read Shadow Divers and they come away with it and they ask questions, they're like, well, they were the Nazis. They were the enemy. And I'm quick to say, absolutely right. You're absolutely right. The Nazis were vile 
a vile organization. They were vile people with the things that they did. That's why the world stood up to them. But those sailors were 18-year-old kids who died in the service of their country. And although they flew under the Nazi flag, and if it was 1945, I would have done my best to kill them because that's what you do in a time of war. But in 1993, when I'm diving in that submarine, they were someone's father or someone's son, someone's brother that no one knew what happened to them. And if it wasn't for John and I, they would still remain anonymous and unknown at the bottom of the ocean. And I think that you have to answer to your own humanity as a person, how do you react when you have this opportunity? So as a shipwreck diver and as a person of German heritage, I felt that this enigma submarine, and it was that, it was a bona fide enigma. And, and I think that's why the book Shadow Divers has done so well, uh, not just for divers. It's, not, it's, it's really not a book written for divers. It's a book written for anyone who wants to read a true-to-life sea mystery that you know, tells this, uh, dare I use the term, hero's journey of these two guys from New Jersey who stumble onto it. And then in a way, you know, you get to know John and Richie. I hate to talk about myself as a character, but I, we are. We're characters in this book. Um, and that's not the story that I knew. The story I knew was one of technical diving, of, of learning more and more about the German submarine fleet, and then ultimately about learning who these men were on the Yuhu. And, and to me, that's the story of, of, of the Yuhu. But the author, Robert Curson, realized if we told the story that Richie was interested in, you know, my mom and maybe five other people would buy the book. So Robert Curson is an incredibly talented writer who somehow told the tale um, in, in a way in the theme of into thin air. So, or of the perfect storm in which any person, you don't have to be a commercial fisherman to appreciate the, the book, The Perfect Storm. You don't have to be a mountain climber to enjoy the, the adventure that is into thin air. So a person has done that for scuba diving. And uh, I, I, you know, people ask me, do you like the book? I'm like, no, sometimes I don't like the book because people read the book and they know things that sometimes my dear friends don't even know about my life. And so strangers walk up to me and they're, they'll say, oh, I read this part of the book, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, you know, I don't even know you. So there's that aspect of it that, that it's like, it was invasive. And, and Rob, when he wrote the book, demanded that he have 100% editorial control. Him, John Chatterton and myself are equal partners, but we're not equal partners in the content of the book. He was the only one who decided what would go in and what would you know, be cut out. And, you know, you know, when I was a kid, I smoked pot in high school and that's in the book and I had to deal with my kids reading, oh, daddy smoked pot when he was in high school. It's like, really? You had to put that in the book? So, you know, um, it, it's kind of, uh, there's no skeletons in my closet, if, if you will, when, when someone writes a book like that. Um, but, it, but that book, literally, and the, let me stop. The discovery of that submarine literally changed my life because not only did it change my life in that I felt all of a sudden now an obligation to 
people I'd never met, people that at one time were the enemy of our country, people for an obligation to travel across the Atlantic Ocean and go to Europe for the first time to meet people and tell them who I was and how we found their father or their brother's boat and, and tell them the story firsthand. Um, that's not who I was at the beginning of this story. And so these events changed me and they changed me in such a way that people like Rob Curson and a documentary film group took notice of. And then ultimately that opened up a whole new area for me um, to expand my love of underwater exploration. And that all came from Bill Nagel's discovery of an unknown German U-boat 60 miles off Atlantic City. Well, well said. Uh, it's really very cool to hear you tell the story that I know uh, rather well. And uh, I slightly misspoke when I said you and Bill uh, spoke in the boat afterwards because it was on that same dive. It was not a subsequent dive. And uh, I'm talking about when you and he were the only divers on that particular dive and he brought up the uh, the saucers and uh, you patted them on the back many times underwater. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to read a paragraph that uh, Kirsten wrote at the end of that chapter, uh, at the end of that dive, about the end of that dive. And, and I, I would agree this book is for anyone that loves history, adventure, uh, exploring. Uh, it's extremely well written for anyone can uh, can understand it. He does a great job explaining a lot about diving and a lot about the situations. But uh, after you guys got on the boat afterwards and uh, took your gear off and you guys had had some friction in the past, certainly as you explained, but chattered and nodded, he understood what Kohler meant. He could tell that Kohler was not talking about diving now, he was talking about life. And he thought it would not be a bad thing to get to know this man better. So that was, uh, to me, that was the beginning of a new relationship, and you guys have now gone uh, the last 20 years with a with an ever increasing uh, nice relationship. I understand. Yeah, we we've literally traveled the world together, and you know when you, when you think about it, I mean, uh, to, to 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 go on from there, um, John and I were shocked. I, I think we were. Shocked, not that our peers and that, that, that some people in New Jersey were interested in our story, it became literally worldwide news. And uh, a bunch of different uh, production companies came over and had the idea of trying to shoot a documentary film and none of them could actually make it happen. Um, I didn't know anything about making television at that time. I didn't know, I mean, I'd only watched television. I had never acted, I had never done anything, but um, we had struck a deal with a uh, company out of Boston that uh, was going to make a NOVA, a, WG, a, a PBS program about our discovery. And they started to work with us and they asked us, what can we do? What can we do to help you? solve the mystery we said well help us get out there because that's we just got to keep diving wrecked there's nothing you can do short of get us diving 
The answer is on the submarine. And that's where we have to get it. We're not gonna find it in an archive. We're not gonna, we realize this. Um, and it was pretty impressive to have people like um, Dean Allard, who was the head of the US Naval Historical Center, say that, you know, John and I had earned PhDs in the Battle of the Atlantic, that there were, you know, two guys that are, you know, were blue collar workers who knew more um, than some of his archivists about U-boat operations off New York and New Jersey. We were very focused. I mean, this is literally what we ate and, um, and drank and slept for, for six years. So when we did finally solve the mystery, and I, and I do encourage people to read the book, that's why I'm not telling you the, the, the identity of the submarine because it's truly a world-class mystery. And, and I want you to enjoy the journey to that answer like we did. And other opportunities afforded themselves because of that documentary film. Um, John and I were just, again, subjects of the film as well as, well as some of the other divers that were involved in the project. But John and I received a phone call from um, some people at uh, executives at A&E Television in New York City inviting us to come to their headquarters in Manhattan. They wanted to speak to us. They had seen uh, the documentary film, The Nova, which is called Hitler's Lost Sub, um, which was uh, it won an Emmy. It was a really great uh, documentary film, two hour long uh, documentary film, uh, coincidentally, narrated by uh, Scheider uh, from, from Jaws. <laughs> Roy Scheider from Jaws is the narrated our documentary. So uh, we went into New York and they said, well, you guys are like detectives. You know, you went underwater and you, you figured this thing out. We are, we're thinking about doing a TV show called, uh, you know, Undersea Detectives, Deep Sea Detectives. And they, we didn't realize at the time, but this interview was like a casting call. They wanted to see how we spoke. They wanted to see if we were really the same guys that they had seen on television on that documentary film. And so they asked us silly questions, well, not silly questions, but like, if you could go anywhere, where would you go? What's the most important shipwreck to you? Um, what are other shipwreck stories? And so we talked for about an hour and at the end of it, they said, thank you. And they didn't even buy us lunch or nothing. We, you know, I think they uh, they paid for John's parking in his Jeep and we left and uh, we're driving down the Jersey Turnpike home and we're like, man, we took a day off work for this for nothing. And they rang, the phone rang and uh, it was them. And they said, look, we love you guys. We're going to do uh, a six, six episodes of a program called Deep Sea Detectives. And, you know, we were, I, I got to tell you, I still to this day, I can't even watch those first early episodes because... John, neither John nor I had ever acted. We, we had, um, you know, had no idea what was to be expected about working for television. Uh, it's like deer in the headlights when I look at these, uh, you know, look at myself on those early programs. But somehow, like everything else that we do in life, we found our way around it and we strive to become good at it. We strive to uh, add something to the story. Meaning, um, not wasn't about reading scripts. It was about that because that's not who we are. Uh, as a matter of fact, early on we found out that uh, those those first two episodes where they wanted us to read scripts, we were like, we can't do this. I can't. I can't even remember my home phone number. You want me to read a script? Are you kidding me? 
It's like, well, what is the story? Oh, we're going to do the Edmund Fitzgerald. I love the story of the Edmund Fitzgerald. It's a great story. So John and I came up with the concept of bullet points. Like, what is it that we want to say now? Okay, we want to say that this was built here. And so John and I would take the bullet points of what they needed and we made it conversation between two friends. And I think that is the reason why the program was so successful. I mean, ultimately those six programs turned into 56 episodes. We did 56 episodes of a program called Deep Sea Detectives for the History Channel. That's four seasons. Uh, got to meet Lee Emery and a lot of other people that were on, a lot of great David Carradine, great actors and uh, notable people that were also uh, part of the History Channel lineup when we were on television. And it was an incredible experience. I literally got paid to go around the world diving, not only shipwrecks, but airplanes, trains, caves, underwater mysteries, if you will. And the strength of it was John and I would take the story and parse it up. And, and just enjoy what we were doing. Yes, it was work. Um, you know, most people think, oh, it's so glor glamorous traveling the world. It's like, no, actually, you know, you, you go to, let's say, Paris, you land in Paris, and you're in Paris for four hours, but you don't have time to see anything because now you've got to drive to Normandy, and then you're diving off Normandy, and, you know, your days, 10-hour days, you know, of working and shooting, it's, I wouldn't change a thing. But it, it, it's not what people think. Working for television is not at all what people think. But the, the wonderful thing about it is it affords you even more opportunity. Working for television now gives you an opportunity to do other projects. It also opens doors for you. Uh, when you call and you say, hey, look, we want to come to this museum and we want to walk the decks of this this ship where we want to film here, doors open because you're working for television. And that enables you to get even more opportunities for referrals. And I can't begin to tell you how many other projects came out of working for Deep Sea Detectives. Probably the greatest opportunity was a phone call that John and I received from a Pennsylvania attorney um, who was representing the salvage rights for a very historic shipwreck. And he um, had made a number of uh, exploratory dives on the shipwreck while working for the company. And he thought that on one of those dives, he had seen something that in hindsight might change what everybody thought about this shipwreck. So because we were working for television, he called us up and, and wanted to see if we could pitch the idea so that we could mount an expedition to go to the shipwreck. Well, the shipwreck that he was speaking about was the RMS Titanic. And we loved this idea so much that we went to our bosses at the History Channel, we told them the story. They loved it too, until they heard the price tag. You see, to get to Titanic, you can't go scuba diving, you've got to use submersibles. And at the time, there was only three submersibles in the entire world capable of diving to the Titanic. One of them, which was Alvin, wasn't even working at that time. It was being refitted, and it wasn't even available. You can't charter the Alvin. It belongs to Woods Hole Oceanographic. You know, you can't just rent it like a Hertz rent-a-car. On the other hand, James Cameron was filming Ghost of the, uh, uh, Ghost of the Abyss, and... and 
was uh, out there filming on Titanic and he had chartered the Russian research vessel, the Keldish. Now the Keldish is a sports ship for the only other two submersibles in the world, the Mirs, Mir 1 and Mir 2. These submersibles were available uh, at a hefty price, about $300,000, we could charter the vessel for one week, and that included the use of the submersibles to go and make a series of dives and find out if this mystery uh, that David Kincannon, the Pennsylvania attorney, was real. And you heard me mention to you earlier that uh, the Andrea Doria was considered the Mount Everest of wreck dive. Well, if that's the Mount Everest, then going to Titanic is like going to the moon. And for a kid who grew up wanting to be an astronaut, the concept of wearing a Nomex flight suit and climbing an aluminum ladder to get into a six inch thick, six foot wide metal sphere and plummet two and a half miles down to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. If that doesn't sound like that's in my DNA, then you don't know who Richie Kohler is. So when the History Channel declined the offer, they said it was too much money. John Chatterton and Richie Kohler mortgaged our houses and we took in a third partner, one of our production uh, company owners, a gentleman named Kirk Wolfinger. And we were equal partners in chartering the Keldish and we went out and made a series of dives on Titanic. We did not prove David Kincannon's theory. We went out and his theory proved to be wrong, but fortunately, um, in another twist of fate, we found something else that was quite unique, so unique that not only did uh, History Channel then buy us out of our own contract, in other words, they bought the deal, we made two, uh, two other shows about Titanic, so three total shows about Titanic out of what we documented on those dives. Um, and and it's, it's basically Titanic's last secrets was the, the idea behind what we had documented. And uh, the documentary film was called Missing Pieces because we located missing pieces of the bottom of Titanic, which explained how the ship actually sank. Um, but also it led me to one of my personal um, passions, which was Titanic's sister ship. Britannic. Most people know the story of Titanic. They know this uh, tragic tale of this heroic ship of dreams that sinks on its maiden voyage. But they don't realize that Titanic was actually one of three ships. These ships were referred to as the Olympians because of the first ship of the class, Olympic. The second ship everybody knows, Titanic. And the third was Britannic. Now, Olympic served a full life. She actually even sank a German U-boat during World War II, if you can believe that. Rammed it, was operating as a troop ship. Um, Britannic, on the other hand, actually, scratch that, um, Olympic uh, sank a U-boat in World War I, not World War II. Um, so you'll have to edit that out. You'll have to correct that. Um, so everyone knows the story of these three Olympic ships. Not, not, excuse me. Not everyone knows the story of these three Olympians. You know, Olympic being the first class, she served a full life and um, notoriously actually sank a German U-boat during World War I um, and served as a, a, a troop ship all the way up to World War II. 
Titanic, as we know, sank on her maiden voyage, but Britannic never got to see her pedigree as an opulent passenger liner. Um, she was conscripted during World War I to become a hospital ship. And in that capacity, um, on her missions of mercy, saved thousands of Allied soldiers that had been wounded or gassed in, in the uh, many battles that occurred, especially in Gallipoli and the Dardanelles, uh, bringing back uh, soldiers who were suffering from dysentery as well as grievous wounds back to England and then back again when ultimately off the coast of a small Greek island called Kia, she succumbed to a mysterious explosion in 1916 and sank three times faster than even Titanic. Fortunately, there were no wounded on board and there was only a few people that were killed in the sinking. So her sinking was not as tragic, of course, as Titanic. But for me, the real beauty of the story of Britannic and the reason why I would become so involved was where you needed these incredibly expensive and highly technical submersibles to dive two and a half miles down to Titanic. Britannic is only in 400 feet of water. And ironically, the father of all of us scuba divers, Jacques Cousteau, was the very person who had located and dived Britannic and was the one who kind of opened up to many of us sport divers the fact that there were still many mysteries on Britannic yet to be solved. People didn't know whether she had been torpedoed or mined, or there were even rumors that she was carrying illegal uh, um, munitions and exploded and that the British government made up the whole story. So I became involved in this from Titanic because we went to Britannic in 2006 to try and answer design questions about the more famous sister. But once I made that first dive and I looked at this beautiful, nearly 1,000 foot ship laying in 400 feet of cobalt blue, gin clear Aegean water, I would spend the next 10 years of my life trying to answer the mysteries of Britannic. That's the one that uh, ultimately, um, unfortunately cost me the life of one of my friends in 2009. And um, uh, in his honor and to his credit, in 2016, we were able to finally at the 100 year anniversary, um, unequivocally answer the question, why did Britannic sink as quickly as she did? And um, that was be the subject of my first book, which was Mystery of the Last Olympian. It's amazing how all of these stories become intertwined and interwoven over a 40-year career of diving shipwrecks. Yeah, it's also amazing your grasp of history. And uh, it, it's, uh, I, I know we're just scratching the surface of everything you know, it's, uh, but it, it, it makes it so much more interesting and gratifying to you, I'm sure, personally, to, to have all the backstories and the knowledge. And it, you know, it goes all the way back to what we talked about at the beginning when you were a child and uh, you, uh, you, you had a, an appetite to learn and read and uh, it, it's gone, it, it's a, a constant thread through your, your career. Um, I uh, wanna thank you so much for joining us. Your, 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 your skill comes through, uh, your skill is boundless, your, your courage, 
to do these deep dives over and over again and keep exploring, keep pushing the envelope intelligently, safely, carefully, and your enthusiasm has been very educational, entertaining to me and I'm sure to our audience. But I don't want to close without asking you what you're up to today. And I know even though we'll we'll post this podcast in two weeks, um, tonight you are airing the Perseus Survivor. And that is one of the things that you've been working on that you're working on these days. Can you bring us up to date on what you're doing these days and tell us about the Perseus Survivor? Well, Richard, I, you know, I never uh, have only one pan on the fire. It's like I've got, I, I run a, a glass company here in Massachusetts. That's, that's how I keep the lights on at home, so to speak. But I do a lot of work um, around the world, um, underwater filming and, of course, shipwreck stories. And I've been working with a group out of Malta uh, called AQ Films. And uh, we have produced a series of docudramas um, telling different stories, shipwreck stories throughout the Mediterranean. And the one that's airing tonight, The Perseus Survivor, is uh, ironically uh, a submarine story, but instead of being a German U-boat, it's about a British submarine during World War II, The Perseus, and the incredible tale of survival of one gentleman the sole survivor who, when his story came out, the British Admiralty didn't know whether to believe him or not. And, and although they ultimately did believe him, I think they were somewhat skeptical until scuba divers in the 90s found the wreck of the Perseus and found everything that this man, obviously he had passed already, but everything he had said was true. And so there's this incredible tale of, of not only the battle uh, surrounding the uh, British stronghold of Malta and how the British believed that at any moment the Axis, the Italians and the Germans were going to invade this island. And so they were using submarines to supply the island. Um, Winston Churchill referred to the island of Malta as his Mediterranean aircraft carrier, because obviously he could launch air attacks against the Italian ships and islands. And so these stories, that's just one of, of the many stories that we're putting together in a series called Dark Wars. Um, some of the other stories are uh, uh, World War I. Uh, some of them are about incredible sailing yachts that were conscripted for war and lost. And uh, it's a project that's dear to my heart because, again, it's, it's not just a straight-up documentary. Although I, you know, I am the narrator and I bring you through the stories, we cut, keep cutting back and forth to actors portraying uh, the principles of the story on these incredible sets with incredible graphics and uh, fantastic art, uh, you know, uh, architecture behind the sets that just brings the stories to life. And I think it's that's a great way to reach, um, you know, young people who many times think that history is dry and dusty. They forget that, you know, history is filled with stories of people just like them that are young and passionate and full of love and that just get caught up in events that are beyond their control. And I think that these docudramas try to bring those elements to the forefront and they're doing it in a way that of course is in my arena, which is a surrounding shipwrecks. 
So that's one thing that I'm, that I'm working on. I'm also working on another a series for Discovery Channel right now about underwater secrets. So I, you know, I, I, I stay busy. I stay busy like that. And on a final note, I still dive for fun. And I'm going to leave uh, for those of your uh, listeners who've actually read Shadow Divers and know who the uh, person Bill Nagel is. Um, just last week, I went out after I hadn't visited the wreck of the Yoo-Hoo in uh, over 12 years. I hadn't been there. Just there's no reason to go. But every now and then I like to go back to, to shipwrecks that are have been important to me in my life. And so last week I went out and I revisited the Yuhu, the subject of the book Shadow Divers. And with me, I took Andrew Nagel. And he's the son of Captain Bill Nagel, the man who discovered the wreck and who tragically died um, before he ever got to see the very submarine he found. And so for me, taking Andrew inside and exploring this German submarine was such an incredible, poignant experience. And it brought me back 20 years to where his father was a man who was quite influential and without even realizing at the time, in many ways shaped the destiny of my life. And so sometimes things have a tendency to come full circle. Richie, I think that's a, a very appropriate, beautiful spot to, to end our conversation today. Uh, I thank you for spending so much time with us. Uh, it just really awesome to meet you and uh, congratulations on all your success and continued success. Thank you, Richard. I want to thank you for listening to another episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. You can find us at Future Frogmen on all social media. You can go to our website at futurefrogmen.com for more content just like this. You can subscribe to our newsletter there to get top updates and, and recent content. Please listen to the next episode of the Blue Earth Podcast coming next Monday per usual. Thank you.